Welcome to The Grove. My name is Caleb Brazier. I am um, one of the pastors here at The Grove. So glad you guys are here with us in 2020, or as your orders of service may say, 2019. Um, it is a throwback service. We have uh, all gotten a DeLorean, and we've traveled back in time a year, and here we are, January 5th, 2019. It's actually a Saturday. Okay, it's, it's time to move on. Um, I need to find Second Corinthians so I can move on from this terrible joke. Um, it is 2020, or 2020, as you might say, uh, and we are going to be jumping back into our study in 2 Corinthians. So one of the things that marks us here at the church is we are expository preachers. Now, what that means is the majority of time, we're just walking chapter by chapter, verse by verse through books of the Bible. We want to, in essence, hold a microphone up to God, let him speak to us. Um, and so we are. Uh, we started 2 Corinthians before Christmas for Advent, um, and we are picking back up where we left off in 2 Corinthians 3, um, chapter 3, verses 7 through 18 this morning. If you grab one of the Bibles next to you, it's on page 1024, maybe? That's a guess? I think so. It's around there. Um, and uh, if you don't have a Bible, feel free to take that with you. That's our gift to you. Um, we love the Bible. We want to be able to give that to as many people as possible. So we're in 2 Corinthians chapter 3, verses 7 through 18. Again, real quick, this is Paul, who's an apostle, uh, who wrote this letter to this church in Corinth. That's why it's called Corinthians. Now, it's the second letter that we have, which is why it's 2 Corinthians. So Paul has this kind of tumultuous relationship with this church. It's up and it's down. It's hot and it's cold. He's in and he's out. Um, and now it seems like things are kind of on the upswing with Paul and this church. Um, the, the church has finally turned back towards him, but there's still a couple underlying issues. One of the main issues that exist is that Corinth was this new kind of flashy city. It was the second or third most powerful in, uh, city in this Roman empire, and it grew really quickly. A lot of new money, new wealth, new construction. They love big, flashy, fast, and so that bled into the way in which they were understanding this new thing called Christianity, or the way, or being a disciple of Jesus. Jesus. And that began to impact the way. So they love the big, flashy, impressive teachers. So they had these other teachers who would come in and who would charge money, who had these letters of recommendation, who were very impressive. And Paul, who was an apostle, wasn't really any of that. He had a hard life. He was imprisoned, shipwrecked, beaten nearly to death. He wasn't a great speaker. He was nothing really to look at. He didn't charge anything. He didn't have letters of recommendation. So for the church in Corinth, they're like, Paul, are you really legit? Because uh, these other guys, they are. Look at all the stuff that they have. But what do you have to offer? And so Paul in this second letter is writing to them, explaining to them what the true nature of Christianity is, what the true nature of this new covenant ministry is. And it's here within chapters three to seven, really, that Paul goes off on this beautiful kind of excursus on what Christianity is and what it's not. And it's kind of upside down and different than the church in Corinth had understood. He says that the, the new covenant ministry is actually found and finds power in your weakness, not in how impressive you are. God's grace is perfected in your weakness. God, God doesn't want impressive people. He wants dependent people. He wants people that knows they can't do it on their own. And he goes off into this beautiful kind of foray into new covenant ministry. Uh, and so what we're gonna be doing over the next few weeks is just taking our time through the end of chapter three, chapters four and five, and seeing Paul kind of laying out this vision of what it is he's calling them to be, what God is calling any follower of Jesus to be. And in a word, he's calling them to be ambassadors. We'll get to that eventually in chapter five, but that really kind of covers all of these couple chapters. So we're gonna be walking through 2 Corinthians, but really honing in on that idea of what it means to be an ambassador of God. And so Paul is talking about this ministry and he calls it the new covenant ministry. Uh, here in 2 Corinthians 3, seven through 18, my, my Bible has a title, a little heading on there that says new covenant ministry. And so before we dive into that, we've gotta do a little bit of work and asking the question, what is new covenant ministry? Or more specifically, what is the new covenant? Or maybe even more specifically, what is a covenant? Right, these aren't really words that we use a lot nowadays. Uh, and it's uh, wildly important in these 
12 verses. And so I want to spend a little bit of time about what the word covenant is and how it unfolds in the Bible and gets us to what Paul will say here. So before we even read it, I want to kind of walk through what it means, what a covenant is. Because I would make this statement that the word covenant is one of I'm a little bit worried about saying it is the most because people make fun of me uh, with the hyperboles that I use, so I won't say that, but it is one of the most important words to understand in the Bible. I will say it is the framework and foundation that the entire Bible is built upon, is this word covenant. And without understanding it, we will miss some of what it is God is doing in and through this redemptive story called the Bible. And so what is covenant? A covenant in just kind of simplified, it's also a promise, commitment, or vows. It's between two parties. There's commitments and stipulations, uh, but it is this promise, this vow that's given between two people. It's often marked by a ceremony, a festival, a feast of some kind, and we see it throughout the Bible. Now, there's two kind of broad general ones. There's the Old Covenant and the New Covenant, or also known as the Old Testament and the New Testament. And within the Old Covenant, there's a handful of covenants within that. You see one with Abraham, or his name was Abram before it was Abraham. And it's here that we see the Bible kind of start in Genesis 12, 15, 17. It begins to unfold and put flesh on what it is God had promised at the very beginning of the Bible. And so it begins as God creates man in the Garden of Eden. Everything's great. There's this perfect relationship with God and his creation, God created everything in the world. And then with his people, there was this unique relationship that he had because they were made in his image. They were image bearers of his. They were different from anything else that he created. And there was this unique relationship that God had with his people. They walked with each other in the cool of the day. There was no sin. There was no separation. There was no pain. There was no death. There was no destruction. Everything was shalom was the Hebrew word. There was peace there in the Garden of Eden. But real quick, right, it takes like two pages to mess things up. Real quick, man rebels against God, turns away from him, and sin enters into the world. And with it, death and destruction and pain for the very first time. And there's also this separation now between God and his people. And there's nothing that the people can do to get back to him. So what's going to happen? Well, God really early on makes a covenant or I promise a vow with his people that says, hey, I'm going to redeem this. I'm going to reconcile this. I will take care of the thing that is separating us. I will bring you back as a people to myself. You will be my people. I will be your God and I will dwell with you forever. And I am making this promise to you all for the glory of my name and for the good of my people to reconcile again this relationship with his people. And so God makes this promise to Abraham in Genesis 12 and tells Abraham, here's this covenant I'm making with you. You're gonna have a name for yourself, you're gonna have land, and you're gonna be blessed to be a blessing to the entire world. And God makes this covenant. And from this then flows his descendants, turns into this nation called Israel. And Israel grows into this nation, but soon gets enslaved by this other nation called Egypt. So the entire nation of Israel now, these descendants of Abraham, these people of the covenant are now enslaved. They're making pyramids or making bricks with no straw. And God hasn't forgotten his covenant. God in his relationship is saying, I'm making this promise and this commitment, this covenant. And from the basis of that covenant will come then a relationship with my people. He says, I haven't forgotten that. And so he goes and he redeems his people from slavery. He redeems his people and brings them to freedom. And then when they're freed, he says, now that you're free, let me show you how it is you're supposed to live. And he gives them what's known as the law, most notably within the 10 commandments. And says, you wanna know what it looks like to live within my kingdom? Here's a reflection of my heart. Here's how it is you're supposed to live. And so gives them this letter, this law that are written on stone tablets. But the problem, if you've read the Old Testament at all, is that that didn't really work. The Israelites were idiots just like you and just like me. And anytime they were told something to do, what did they do? They went, I don't want to do that, mainly just because you're telling me to do it. Maybe you're much godlier than I am, but there's a part of me that doesn't like to be told what to do. I I won't even want to do something until someone tells me not to do it, and then I want to do it. It's like, I didn't have any interest, but now you're telling me not to do that. Boy, I really, really want to do that thing. And you see this. Any parents in here see this early on with kids as well. This is inherent within every single human being. Don't touch that, it may kill you. Okay, I wanna go and touch that. 
It doesn't matter what the reasoning may be. Because there is a law, there's something in us that springs up that wants to do it just because we're told not to. That's given to us from Adam. And it was there with Israel that when they got the law, they rebelled against it and it brought death. It brought condemnation because they couldn't do what it was God had told them to do. But that wasn't always the plan. The law was setting something up. This old covenant was pointing forward to something. It wasn't meant to last forever. It was always temporary, setting the stage and preparing the way for this one that could come and actually accomplish the law and usher in what's known as a new covenant. Now, when Moses received those 10 commandments, there's a story I wanna read real quick that is gonna be referenced often in 2 Corinthians. When Moses went up and got those 10 commandments, he went to Mount Sinai. In Exodus 34, they'd just been delivered from Egypt. Moses goes up the mountain, gets the Ten Commandments, and Exodus 34 says this. It's an incredible story. It says, as Moses descended from Mount Sinai with the two tablets of the testimony or of the covenant in his hands, as he descended the mountain, he did not realize that the skin of his face was shining as a result of his speaking with the Lord. So again, understand what's happening. Moses has gotten the words now of the law. He's gotten these words of the covenant to go down and give to the people. He'd just been talking to God. And because of that, his face is shining like he's walking out of a Ghostbusters movie. And he comes down Mount Sinai and his face is shining. And when Aaron and all the Israelites saw that the skin of his face shone, they were afraid to come near him. They're like, this is strange. Your, your skin is glowing Go somewhere else while this fades away. We would respond no differently. But Moses called out to them. And so Aaron and all the leaders of the community returned to him and Moses spoke to them. And afterwards, all the Israelites came near and he commanded them to do everything the Lord had told them on Mount Sinai. Here's the law. Here's what God has told us to do as people of his covenant, of his promise. When Moses has finished speaking with them, he put a veil over his face. But whenever Moses went before the Lord to speak with him, he would remove the veil until he came out. And after he came out, he would tell the Israelites what he had been commanded. And the Israelites would see that Moses' face again was shining and radiant. And Moses would put the veil over his face again until he went to speak with the Lord. So because Moses was there with God, his face is shining, puts a veil over it because he's worried what the Israelites are gonna do. They're scared of what's happening. So Moses veils the glory of God so that they don't see it until he goes and speaks again with God face to face. But again, this testament, this, this old covenant was preparing the way for someone to come. And this was promised even in the Old Testament, even in the Old uh, Covenant. In Jeremiah and Ezekiel, you have these two passages. Jeremiah says this, look, the days are coming. This is the Lord's declaration when I will make a new covenant with the house of Israel and with the house of Judah. And this one will not be like the covenant I made with their ancestors on the day I took them by the hand and led them out of the land of Egypt. No, my covenant that they broke, even though I am their master. Instead, this is the covenant I will make with the house of Israel after those days. I will put my teaching within them and I will write it on their hearts. I will be their God and they will be my people. You hear again that refrain of covenant that produces relationship. God says, I'm gonna make a new covenant and I'm not gonna just give them a law, I'm gonna put it within them. I'm not gonna write it on tablets of stone, I'm gonna write it on their hearts. And the result of this is that I will be their God, they will be my people, there will be this relationship that is restored. And on the basis and foundation of that covenant and God working as a result of that promise and that vow, relationship springs forward. And you may begin to hear some of the residue or some of the, the resemblance between one of the covenants that we still kind of recognize today, and that's the covenant of marriage. That within a covenant of marriage, it's no different. What is the foundation of marriage? Is it romance? Is it butterflies in your stomach? Is it how they make you feel when you see them at 6.30 in the morning? Probably not. But let me just say, the culture is pushing hard that the basis of love is your feelings. And that just won't last because those feelings go up and down. What the Bible teaches is that that covenant is a foundation of a promise and a vow. And from the foundation of that, from the soil of that safety and that commitment and that covenant, then blossoms relationship, blossoms affection, blossoms romance. The most important part, I was uh, officiated a wedding last weekend. And I told them before walking in that ceremony, the most important thing you will do is you stand up there. 
is when you look at each other in the eyes and you vow to one another that says, hey, I'm not going anywhere. Sickness, health. Richer, poor. I'm here. That vow, that covenant is what you have to go back and lean on in those moments when marriage is difficult because the feelings won't be there. And that makes sense because in Ephesians 5, Paul says the whole purpose of marriage as it's designed by God is to be a reflection of God's relationship with his people, of Christ and his bride, Christ and the church in this new covenant. And so we see the resemblance here as God is giving this covenant and from the covenant grows relationship. And similar thing in Ezekiel 36 says, God says, I will give you a new heart and put a new spirit within you. I will remove your heart of stone and give you a heart of flesh. I will place my spirit within you and cause you to follow my statutes and carefully observe my ordinances. Can you hear the difference between the old and the new covenant? The old covenant is here's the law, follow it. And it brings rebellion often. We can't do that, Israel rebels. But God says there's gonna be a new covenant and I won't just give you the law externally, I will give it to you internally. I will put my spirit within you. I will write my law on your hearts. I will place my spirit within you and cause you to follow my law, my statue, and carefully observe my ordinances. And so there is this new covenant that was promised. And it's the new covenant, this new covenant, this new promise, this new vow, this new relationship that Jesus ushers in. And so with that in mind now, that gets us to uh, 2 Corinthians 3, verses 7 through 18. You'll begin to hear Paul referencing back and forth a number of these things that we just read. So reading in verse seven, Paul writes this. Now, if the ministry that brought death, talking again about the old covenant, the ministry that brought death chiseled in letters on stones came with glory. So the Israelites were not able to gaze steadily at Moses' face because of its glory, which was set aside. How will the ministry of the spirit not be more glorious? For if the ministry that brought condemnation had glory, the ministry that brings righteousness overflows with even more glory. In fact, what had been glorious is not glorious now by comparison because of the glory that surpasses it. For if what was set aside was glorious, what endures will be even more glorious. Since then, we have such a hope, we act with great boldness. We're not like Moses, who used to put a veil over his face to prevent the Israelites from gazing steadily until the end of the glory of what was being set aside but their minds were hardened. For to this day, at the reading of the old covenant, the same veil remains. It is not lifted because it is set aside only in Christ. Yet still today, whenever Moses is read, a veil lies over their hearts. But whenever a person turns to the Lord, the veil is removed. Now the Lord is the spirit and where the spirit of the Lord is, there is freedom. And we all with unveiled faces are looking as in a mirror at the glory of the Lord and are being transformed into the same image from glory to glory. This is from the Lord who is the spirit. So you hear Paul here in this chapter is going back and forth comparing this old covenant and this new covenant. So I wanna work quickly through the first two points. We can kind of camp in at the very end. The three points we'll be walking through today is asking the question, why, talking all about the new covenant, why is it better? How should we respond and what does it produce? So why is it better? How should we respond and what does it produce? I wanna walk through quickly the first two so we can set in a little bit at the end. So why is it better? Why is the new covenant better than the old covenant? Well, in verses seven through 11, Paul gives three reasons as he's comparing these two, he says, the ministry, the old covenant brought death, but the new covenant brings life. It gives life. You see, at the very end of six and into seven, the spirit gives life, but the old covenant brought death. It was chiseled on stones. Paul is saying, in the old covenant, it brought death with it. Here was the law. Here's what you have to do to accomplish and be righteous and live forever. But no one could do it. Everyone fell short. And now because the result of that, death was upon every single person. And it brought a realization of that. It brought death with it, but it still had glory. 
Moses, he received it. His face was shining. So what Paul's trying to say is because that brought death, it still had so much glory. How much more than in this new covenant that's brought in by the spirit will have even more glory. It will be even greater. It will be more glorious. So Paul says first, why is it better? Because the new covenant gives life and not death. The second, the second reason he gives in verses nine and 10, he says, not only does it give life, it also brings righteousness and not condemnation. Look at verse nine, that the ministry that brought condemnation had glory, the ministry that brings righteousness overflows with even more glory. So Paul's saying in the new covenant, what the new covenant brings is righteousness. That's another one of those words like righteousness. What does that mean? What's it mean to be righteous? All we kind of use it today is a self-righteous, and that's a negative term. Well, righteousness, in a sense, in a biblical sense, is to be perfectly right. It's to accomplish every single one of God's laws, to be perfectly right and righteous. We say, well, who is righteous? No one, not one, is what Paul says in Romans 3. None of us is righteous. We've all fallen short of God's glory. We've all broken that law, rebelled against him. Well, what does the new covenant do in bringing righteousness then? Because we talk a lot about the gospel and say that we're not saved by works. And that's tremendously important and true. We're not saved. You are not saved by anything that you do. You do not gain any value or impression from God. You are saved by grace alone, through faith alone, and Christ alone. You're not saved by works. That is true. In another sense, though, I want to press a bit and say, actually, you are saved by works. They're just not your own. What I mean by that is that Christ came, and whenever he came, he lived a sinless life. The law that God had given that no one could live up to, Jesus did it perfectly. He was tempted as we were, but without sin. He's the only man that's ever been born, the only human that's ever walked the face of the earth that could look at and go, you are righteous. He was the only one that had within him the righteousness of God. He, in his active obedience, obeyed the law that he authored. And when he dies on the cross, what Paul, we'll get to this in 2 Corinthians 5, what Paul says happens is that righteousness that Jesus had accrued, all of that obedience, everything that he had done on the cross for everyone that believes in him, what happens is that Jesus actually takes on our sin. So all of our rebellion, all the ways in which we fell short of that old covenant law, Jesus takes on him. He made him who knew no sin to be sin. He takes that on and absorbs the punishment meant for us because of our rebellion. And what do we get? So that we might become the righteousness of God in him. He gets our sin and he gives us his obedience, or as the Bible says, his righteousness, and clothes it on us. It's wrapped around us like a robe, it's not ours. So we all stand. Anyone that has faith in Jesus is perfectly righteous before God, but not because of what you've done, because of something has been given to you, because of the check that's been written and cashed into your account. It's an alien righteousness, an other's righteousness that has been imputed or accredited to you. It's been counted as yours. So it brings righteousness. That's what the new covenant brings. So you would think the old covenant then brings unrighteousness, right? The opposite of it. But no, the old covenant, the law wasn't unrighteous. It wasn't bad. The law is good and holy and just. It was a reflection of God's character. So what it brought was not unrighteousness, but it brought condemnation. It said, God said, here is my standard, perfection. And every single person fell short and was condemned. And the old covenant brought with it condemnation. Still had glory, but it brought condemnation. But now, for those who are in Christ Jesus, there is therefore now no condemnation because he was condemned so that we might be accepted. So Paul is saying that the old covenant brought condemnation, but it still had glory. How much more then will the new covenant that brings righteousness have even more glory? It is better than the old so he says, first, that it's better because it gives life and not death. Second, it brings righteousness and not condemnation. And third, verse 11, because it endures and it's not set aside. Look at verse 11. He says, for it was set aside, talking about the old covenant, but it was still glorious, but what endures will be even more glorious. The old covenant, the law was always meant to be temporary. It was setting the stage. It was getting ready to prepare and point towards the one who could accomplish it and fulfill it. 
It wasn't abolished, it was fulfilled in Jesus Christ. It was set aside when he came and brought in a new and better covenant. But this new covenant isn't just temporary, it lasts forever. The righteousness that we are given, we have forever. The life that we are given, we have forever. This is not an uncertain kind of a relationship. The covenant relationship that we are now in with God lasts for eternity, and we are with him forever. Everything that it accomplished, we have once and for all. And so it endures and is not set aside. So Paul is trying to get people, particularly those who were Israel uh, in Israel, Jewish people here in the first century, who were so wrapped up still in in the old covenant, Paul's saying, listen, it had glory, but Jesus has brought something that has even more glory. Look to him. Because the law, the letter, it can't accomplish it. It can't give you what you need to be able to fulfill it. But Jesus can. And so he's trying to press on them the ways in which the new covenant is better. He's saying it's not about just obeying rules. It's not just about external conformity. It's about internal transformation. And you hear that in the language, even in in the old covenant promises. God doesn't just give a law externally. He writes it on our hearts. So it's not just, understand this, this is a really important distinction. What Christianity is not is a set of rules that we have to try to tick the boxes off. It's not a list of obligations or things that we have to somehow try to act like or perform, or try to accomplish. It's not external. Christianity is internal. It's focused on our hearts and making us begin to change our, not just actions, but our desires, our affections, our want-tos, what it is we want to do. That's why God doesn't just give it. He writes it on our hearts. So that all of a sudden now his law begins to be things we want to do. We want to love one another. We want to be patient. We want to be kind. We want to forgive and show mercy. We want to stand for justice in a world. We want to do those things that begins in our hearts and changes our actions, but it starts there. Christianity is not fundamentally about obeying rules. It's about knowing Jesus. It's not about external conformity. It's about internal transformation. It's not about doing different things. It's about loving different things. And this is so important from a a sense of application, looking at what it means to be a parent. Again, looking at this idea as an ambassador here in this world, as a parent, one of the ways which you can see yourself as a parent is you are ambassador for God in your home. So when your children look at you, they should see imperfect, yes, but a, a sense of what God is like as you stand in grace and mercy and justice and pointing people, raising them up in the instruction and discipline of the Lord. When they look to you, they should get a sense of what God is like. You are an ambassador for them. And it's important that you get this distinction that Paul's pressing in on because one of the dangers of parenting, I know I feel this at least, is just trying to get kids to obey and be good. Here are laws, do them. Don't do bad things. Don't embarrass us. Don't don't stop acting like that. And if we focus just on actions, we will do anything that we can in order to get them. Fear, intimidation, trying to intimidate children to be able to just accomplish what it is we want to see. And so we lay down the law. But friends, what that will bring is no different than what it did in the old covenant. It will more than likely bring rebellion if that's all there is or if it's somehow accomplished a sense of self-righteousness, but it will not lead people to Jesus. We have to see the only way for our children's hearts to change is not just parenting techniques and strategies. It's bringing them to Jesus, having them encounter his grace. Do we need rules and laws and discipline? Of course, but if that's all we have, we're missing the power of God in our homes. And so we have to see why it is the new covenant is better for those reasons. It gives life, not death. It brings righteousness and not condemnation and it endures and not set aside. Well, second, and how should we respond? Look at verse 12, Paul says, this is the hope then that we have. We act with great boldness. So we should respond by acting and acting with boldness. Going forward in this life as ministers of this new covenant, because Paul says God is the one who's doing it. God's writing the law on their hearts. 
It's not up to you to change what it is you love. It's not up to you to change what other people love. We proclaim the gospel. We get the gospel from our lips to their ears. God gets it from their ears to their hearts. And so we understand our role in this. We proclaim the gospel and we go forward with boldness knowing that God is the one who's working. God is the one accomplishing. God's the one who's made the covenant and who is going to act and give new hearts and put new spirits and write new laws. Right, so he says, we act with boldness because Moses didn't. Moses was timid. Moses, after he had experienced God's glory, walked out and covered it. He was worried about how they would respond. He was timid and kind of afraid. He was worried about how it would, they would interact with him. So he puts a veil over their face, over his face. And Paul says, to this day, actually, the same veil remains. And he says, the problem there in Exodus 34 wasn't that the veil was over Moses' face, is that the veil was over their hearts. When Moses walked out and his face was shining with glory, they should have been able to see, he has been with God, we want to be as well. But they went, this is weird and we wanna get away. They were unable to see truly who God was. There was a veil over their heart. And Paul says in 15, still today when Moses is read, a veil lies over their hearts. The greatest problem wasn't the veil covering Moses' face, it was the veil that was covering their hearts. So how is that veil removed? Well, he tells us, verse 16, whenever a person turns to the Lord, the veil is removed. Whenever someone looks to Jesus, that veil is taken away. And all of a sudden, the glory of God is experienced in our own lives, and we see it for ourselves. So we turn our eyes upon Jesus, look full in his wonderful face because it's only then the things of this world grow strangely dim and the light of his glory and grace. That veil is then removed. And so we can walk forward and act with boldness, proclaiming the gospel to our friends, our family, our neighbors, our coworkers, because we know God is the one who's doing it. God is the one who's made this covenant. God is the one who is working, he is acting. Our hope rests not in how confident we are in our abilities, but in the God who's promised to do the work. A couple of days ago, we were driving back, was it last night? Well, no, it's two nights ago. We were getting ready to drive back from Mississippi. We were there with our family in Mississippi. We are getting ready to drive back. But in the back of the van, uh, our minivan, which is awesome, by the way. If you don't own a minivan, you should. They're incredible. I'm not joking. It's changed our lives. I don't know why I didn't buy a minivan when I was 16 years old. Moving on. <laughs> our van in the very back had this problem with a rear actuator. I think, I don't know what it was. I'm going to sound, I have no idea what's happening. But here's what, you turn the car on and it clicked in the back. Um, so we went and took it in. They said, here's the part you need. Here's how much it would cost to fix it, which was astronomical, by the way. Uh, I said, or you can just buy the part and fix it yourself. Well, I'm a man. And so <laughs> I said, I'll go with that option. So we buy the part and I get it. And we found a YouTube video and we start looking through it. And I'm like, listen, I can't do this. I'm an idiot. There's not a chance. My, my most technical description of what's happening is there's clicking happening in the back. And so we, we go because while I may not be able to do anything, my father-in-law is on the other end of the spectrum and is able to do everything in the world. He is the man that MacGyver is jealous of. My father-in-law can do whatever he wants. And so we are there two nights ago and uh, we tell him the problem. He's like, all right, give me the part. I'll go take care of it. So he goes out to the van. He takes apart like half of the back of the van and is pulling apart uh, these things and is getting the actuator in. And I'm not even back there. That's how helpful I'm in. I'm just in the house talking with family and uh, he's in the garage uh, fixing the car. And eventually I go out towards the end to help. He's like, hey, what I need you to do is I need you to just pull back this black piece while I get my hands back to put the part in. So again, I have no idea what's happening. I hear him talking to the person that's helping him. He's like, okay, the white thing goes here, the holes and the screws. I'm like, I, I don't have a clue. I just know I'm here to hold this thing. So I'm just sitting here holding it while he fixes it. But listen, I didn't have a clue what was happening. I didn't really add much to the process. Some of the times I just got in the way. But the whole time I sat there going, I know this car is gonna get fixed. I don't have a clue what I'm doing. I'm helping the process, but I know the car is going to get fixed because my father-in-law can do whatever he wants. He is the most accomplished, gifted, fix it, whatever it might be guy that's out there. I've seen it a thousand times. I know it's going to happen again. So I sat there, even though there are times where a screw might fall or the white thing popped out. It's like, oh no, what's going to happen? Where's the white thing going to go? I went, it's my father-in-law. It's going to be fine. <laughs> 
And my confidence, my hope wasn't in my ability, it was in the ability of the one who was doing the work. Friends, that's what Paul's trying to say here is that his confidence in new covenant ministry and his work, it's not in what he can do. It's in the confidence and hope and the ability of the one who's promised to do the work. Paul's saying, listen, I don't honestly don't even understand all that the Father is doing. And there are times when it feels like there are screws being dropped and there's no way that this can be fixed. But I'll sit here holding this piece, doing what God has told me to do because I know my Father, I've seen it a thousand times and I know that he'll do it again today. He is going to act. He is going to work. And one day he's going to fix it all because he's promised to. I've seen him do it and I know he's going to do it again. So Paul says, because of that, we have such a hope, we can act with boldness. I can hold that black piece back with confidence, knowing that it's going to be fixed. And Paul's saying for us in our lives, the ministry that God has called you to, he's called you into this ministry. New covenant ministry, to be a Christian, to be on mission, it's not just for pastors or missionaries or really mature Christians. Anyone that follows Jesus Anyone who's been saved by Jesus has been sent by Jesus, has been called as a minister of the new covenant. That's what Paul says just before that. In verse six, the verse right before we started, he has made us competent to be ministers of a new covenant. Paul is talking about you. You are a minister of this new covenant to take this gospel of grace, take this Jesus that you now know to a lost and dying world, to a broken and damaged world. You are called to carry that message. You are called to be a minister or to use another word, you are called to be an ambassador. And the confidence and hope that you have in your work is not in your ability. It's not in how great of a Christian you might think you look like. In fact, what we're going to get into in 2 Corinthians, the weaker you are, the more useful you are to God. Because it's the weak ones that go, I need help. And God says, exactly. Now my power can be displayed. And he works there. And so Paul is writing here saying that we have this hope because God is the one who's writing the law. God is the one who's taking out hearts and giving us new ones. God is the one who's working to us and he's called us to do it. So we have such a hope so we can act with great boldness. We don't have to veil what it is that we have. We can walk forward and directly and boldly proclaim the hope that we have in Jesus Christ because of our father and his ability. So what does it produce? It produces action, with boldness. That's what the new covenant produces. But third, or that's, what, that's how we should respond. So third, what does it produce? So why is it better? It's better than the old covenant this way. How should we respond? We should respond with action and with boldness, but what does it produce? Look at verses 17 and 18. We see here it produces two things. It produces freedom and it produces transformation. Look at verse 17. Now, the Lord is the spirit and where the spirit of the Lord is, there is freedom. What a beautiful verse. Where the spirit of the Lord is, there is freedom. Well, freedom from what? We could take that to mean whatever we want it to mean. I see people often do that. But it's important within reading the Bible, we have to understand within the context what Paul's talking about. Paul's talking about something very specific here. Freedom from what? And you hear, again, there's all this allusion to the Old Testament and the Old Covenant. When was the Old Covenant given? It was given when they were set free from slavery. God delivered them, right? Sent Charlton Heston, got them through the 10 plagues. They delivered them, walked through the Red Sea. On the other side of the Red Sea, Mount Sinai, here's the covenant. Here's the law. And there's this Mosaic covenant that is made. God delivered them from slavery, gave them freedom. Well, here, Paul is picking up on that theme and saying, we are no different in the new covenant. We are set free. The Spirit of the Lord has come and set us free as well. We have freedom. Well, freedom from what? Well, it goes back to what he talked about in verses 7 through 11. What does the new covenant bring with it? Why is it better? Because it frees us from death. It frees us from condemnation, and it frees us from uncertainty. There is freedom now in this new covenant because we are now free from death. The thing that's at the end of every single one of our lives that stays out there and is coming for every single one of us, Jesus Christ has come and he has defeated it once and for all so that it no longer holds slavery over us and binds us in our hearts, but we are set free from it, not because of what we've done, not I, but Christ in me. When I went to Israel, there were a lot of things that were really hokey. 
there were a lot of things that were kind of focused on tourism. And we went over there in September. It was really cheesy. And a lot of places like this may or may not be where this happened. And who knows? But give us your money and you can go and see it. But there's one place we went to that, again, it may or may not have been the place, but it at least was a setting that was like it. It was by far the most impactful place that we went to. We went to this garden just outside the city gates, old city gates of Jerusalem. We walked up to this old garden tomb. And friends, it didn't have anything in it. That our Savior, our King, walked out of his grave. And he defeated death once and for all. He did. And for all those who are in him, he then gives us that victory and he gives us that freedom. And he says, in this new covenant, I bring life. And not life that just lasts for a little while. It's not a good life that's just like, oh, this is happy for a bit. It's life that will last forever. And so within the new covenant, it produces freedom from death, produces freedom from condemnation. That's why we can come each week and confess We can confess because there's no longer condemnation for us. We don't come going, okay, God, I've done some things wrong. Will you forgive me? Have I been good enough? We get to walk forward boldly and go, God, you know this already. And like Benjamin said, it's already been dealt with. We walk forward, not in fear, but in boldness going, God, I've fallen again. Thank you for taking care of it and dealing with it. I wanna walk forward in future faithfulness. We are free from condemnation. There is no condemnation for those who are in Jesus Christ. We're also free from uncertainty. The uncertainty, it's not, will this last? How's this going to go? This is going to be the relationship forever. It is not going to be set aside. It will endure. So we have freedom. And those things no longer have a grip on you. They do not bind you. You are no longer slaves to them because the gospel that you believe is a victorious gospel. And the king that you follow is a triumphant king. So give me a Jesus that can deal with death. Give me a Jesus that deals with all the guilt and shame of my past, my present, and my future. Give me a Jesus that can secure for me the eternity that I feel is stamped in my heart. Friends, it's all yours in Christ. You are free completely from all of it because the spirit of the Lord now dwells in you. And where the spirit of the Lord is, there is freedom. And so it brings freedom. And lastly, it also brings transformation. Verse 18. So Paul says, we all now with unveiled faces, you can hear him referencing that story in Exodus 34. He said, now we with unveiled faces are looking as in a mirror. We are beholding, we are looking at the glory of the Lord and are being transformed into the same image from glory to glory. This is from the Lord who is the spirit. So it's a new year, right? 2019, right? This is it, as our orders of service say. It's a new year, 2020. The new year always brings what? This is it, I'm gonna be different, New year, new you, transformation, hashtag transformation. Here it comes, watch out. New decade. Friends, you want transformation? Paul tells us how it is we're transformed. How are we transformed? By beholding with unveiled face the glory of the Lord. By seeing and staring at him until we see it. You go, well, that sounds great and churchy, but what's it mean to behold the glory of the Lord? What does that mean? I'll sit in here and amen. I'll walk out and be like, okay, the pastor said to behold the glory of the Lord. How in the world do I do that? Well, Paul clarifies it in a couple verses. We'll get into this more next week, but just for a bit of clarity here in chapter four, verse six, we see that God said, let light shine out of darkness has shown in our hearts to do what? To give the light of the knowledge of the glory of the Lord. Where? Where is the glory of the Lord found? In the face of Jesus Christ. You want to know where God's glory is focused, where it is centered, where it congregates together? It is there in the face of his son, Jesus. So Paul is saying, do you want to be transformed? Look to Jesus. Behold him. I love that word in some translations. It says behold. I love that word. Don't just say turn or glance, but behold. There's a sense of where you don't just look, but you linger. You're staring You do a a double neck, right? You see, you walk by and you look again. You're beholding, looking, staring. 
Paul says, you want to be transformed, behold the glory of the Lord and the face of Jesus Christ. And as you look to him and behold him, you'll begin to become like him. Because it's a true kind of law across the board. You become what you behold, whatever it might be. Whatever it is you're looking at, that's the thing you begin to become like. So you look and see what occupies your thoughts, what occupies your bank statements, what occupies your calendar. That's the thing that you are looking at and beholding. And whatever that is, that will begin to shape who you are. Right, this is true, even, goodness, with me as a preacher, I, I had a, one of my favorite preachers through seminary, and I just started doing preaching classes. I listened to this guy all the time. I got up to preach for the first time in my class, and I looked and sounded and did mannerisms just like him. And some of the feedback I got was, hey, you are not that guy, so just stop it. <laughs> it was very helpful. But one, it's, it's part of that is the sense that I, I was so helped by his ministry, and I just kept listening to his sermons. I just began to be like that. And so it's true for us in our lives, no matter what it may be. And so what Paul is saying is you want to be transformed this new year? Are you stuck in sin and don't know how to get out of it? Are you tired of having a cold and distant relationship with God? Or maybe you're here and you're saying, I just want hope. I don't really know who this Jesus is or what this new covenant really means, but I know that this world is broken and I need some hope. What Paul is saying here is that the answer is to turn your eyes to Jesus and look at his face and stare at it. And it's there that you will find the answer that your soul has been longing for. Look at his face, behold it now with unveiled faces. We get to see now with the glory removed. We get to look to him. Now we'll see, Paul says in his letter to the church in Corinth, he says, we see now dimly, it's not perfect, but one day we will see perfectly. And so I love the progression through the Bible. In the old covenant, Moses couldn't even see God's face because he would die. He just saw the train of his robe passing by and Moses' face shone with glory. Couldn't even see his face. Now in the new covenant, we get to with unfailed face, behold the glory of the Lord in the face of Jesus Christ, but it's still dim. It's still imperfect, but the veil's been removed. And how does the Bible end? I love, oh my goodness, I love the Bible ends this way. The very last chapter in Revelation 22, new heavens and new earth, this new Jerusalem has come down. And what will life be like in that new heavens and new earth for all of eternity? Paul said, uh, the, the, John, the author of Revelation, says a number of things, but one of the things he says in the last chapter in verse four that culminates in this relationship that we will have for eternity is he says that his people will see his face. Finally, we will get to see the thing that our hearts have been longing for. Could there be someone that can fix it? We look to him now imperfectly, but on that day, we will see him face to face. And we will see within his face the very glory and concentration of the glory of the Lord and the thing that our hearts have been longing for. And we'll finally see him face to face to face. And so you want to be transformed this year? Turn your eyes to Jesus. Look to him. Behold him. So what does that look like? What does that mean? Just two practical things. One, read your Bible. The whole Bible is about Jesus. So open it up and look for him. It's there that we begin to see his character, see his heart, see how God has revealed himself. And so read your Bible. If, if that's overwhelming, here's a great, let me just encourage you to do this. Look at what the next chapter is that we're coming up with. We just preach through the Bible and just read that chapter all week. So next week, we're gonna be in 2 Corinthians 4. Just read 2 Corinthians 4 all this week and come with questions, come with, with uh, ideas that you may have. And I promise you that will enrich your Sunday experience so much more as you're not just hearing this for the very first time. So reading plans are great, but often they're overwhelming. Maybe I'm the only one. You get a reading plan, it's like, this is him. I read the Bible and in a year. You get through three days and you're three days behind. It's like, well, okay, that's gonna happen. 2021 though, it's coming, 2021. So let me just encourage you to just get in it. Just get in the Bible. Look for Jesus there. It's all about him. Secondly, how do you behold Jesus? Come to church. Come here. Listen, there's nothing magical that happens here, but let me just tell you, 2 Corinthians 3.18 shapes our entire philosophy of ministry. So what we are not trying to do here at this church is trying to entertain you. 
We're not trying to make it to where this is like some cool hip thing that you want to be at. What we're striving for, our goal every single Sunday is to lift high the name of Jesus Christ and say, look to him. And there's a unique way in which Jesus meets with his people when they gather together to worship him. And so what I can guarantee you, if you come consistently, your soul will be enriched, whether it be here or at another church, but just find somewhere where you are coming consistently that is, find a church that is lifting high the name of Jesus and pointing people to him to say, look, let's look at him, let's behold him, let's stare at him, because it's only as we look to him that we will be transformed. There is no 12-step process that brings people back to life. Jesus is the only one that does that. And so we look to him. And so that's what it is we focus on, that we strive for. And seeing that transformation happen slowly. So you're not gonna come next week and have the whole Bible read. You're not gonna come next week and sin's gonna be completely gone in your life. But look at what it says. We are transformed how? Into the same image. That very image that we're looking at, the face of Jesus Christ. We're transformed into that image. But it happens from glory to glory. It happens in degrees. It happens progressively and slowly, and that's okay. So we're not here to help you take your final step towards perfection. We're here to take your, help you take your next step because we all have one, and we are all being transformed into that image. Well, are we the ones doing it? No, this is from the Lord who is the Spirit. God is accomplishing it. We look and behold him. So this is what Paul is saying here in this new covenant ministry. You are ministers of this new covenant. It is so much better than the old. It brings life. It gives freedom from condemnation and brings righteousness. And it is eternal. It creates in us an action with boldness. And it produces freedom and transformation. Friends, this is the new covenant. And this this is what you and I have been called into. So what has God given us to help us remember this covenant? Well, God actually has given us both a sign and also a meal of this new covenant. And it's meant to strengthen our faith by reminding us of his promise and what he's accomplished. Paul puts it this way in 1 Corinthians 11. He says, for I received from the Lord what I also passed on to you, that on the night when Jesus was betrayed, the Lord took bread and when he had given thanks, he broke it and said, this is my body, which is for you. Do this in remembrance of me. In the same way, he also took the cup after supper and said, this is the cup of the new covenant in my blood. Do this as often as you drink it in remembrance of me.